Ghostly Thistle presents The Antique Shop Episode 44 The Painting You're not going to believe this But I had a run-in with Reed's latest... I didn't even know what to call them by this point. I think if Finn and Kronos hadn't been there to witness it, I wouldn't have believed it happened. Kronos and I are at the glass counter, the travel-size Monopoly board laid out between us. Somehow, I was still losing. The Madame Norna's may have spent their lengthy lifespan helping people and fixing problems, whilst this wee shite was becoming a master at every card or board game in existence. At least I have the next few hundred years to improve. Finn has emerged face storage, dusty, covered in spiderwebs, sporting a few bruises here and there I dare no ask about and is currently amongst the aisles. He seems in a better mood today, given he's exchanged more than two words with me. All of us, in general, are minding our own business. I barely notice a lad lingering outside, glancing down the street one way and then the other, as though waiting for someone. Maybe it happens a lot, and I've never noticed. My attention is pulled back to Monopoly, but every so often I glance up to see if he's still there. Perhaps a customer? I eventually glance up and he's staring straight at me. I immediately look away, stung, that I've been caught having a nosy. I'm apprehensive when the bell goes, but just assume he's a new breed, a customer arguing with himself if he's going to give in to the superstition outside rather than after he's come in the door. I take a peek to find he's still staring at me. No the antiques, no the floor, no doing the aisles, wondering which one to choose, no in his pocket for a business card. Directly at me. I feel the prickle a panic at the back of my neck. Do I know him and I've just forgotten? Mercy to all the gods out there that he mentions his name so I didn't have to ask. He doesn't look familiar. He walks over to the counter where Kronos and I are bent over a small Monopoly board. If he notices, he doesn't react. He asks if I'm Maya. Oh fuck. I nod, still praying he'll remind me who he is. He says that he's Douglas, Reed's boyfriend. If someone's attention span could make a noise, it was Finn's. I could feel it, let alone hear his ears perk up at this comment. I was honestly surprised he didn't appear for one of the aisles like a rabbit poking its heed at its warren. Douglas takes a look at Kronos, his hand twitching. 
but thinks better of it as the wee shite's tail whips back and forth, as if batting away a fly. I ask him if he's waiting for Reed, and he confirms he is. I'm about to ask something equally mundane to fill the silence when he stares me down and asks what the deal is between Reed and I, since Reed was always talking about me. I wasn't so dense I thought the correct answer was just pals, even though that was the truth. I said it anyway. Douglas rolls his eyes so far back into his heed I think he's going to lose them, and then snorts derisively that he's heard that before. Why did he fucking ask then? It didn't take me long to realise that although Finn and I had made bets, commented on, even worried over Reed's love life, that I didn't want to get involved. I try notice sigh loudly in exasperation, but assure Douglas that nothing can or will ever go on between Reed and I beyond friendship, because I'm not interested in that kind of thing. Oh, so you're gay then? he questions, looking hopeful. I should have just said yes, but instead I replied, something like that. This was not the answer Douglas wanted, and if looks could kill, I'd have been deed on that Monopoly board. I've never been so thankful to hear the bell above the door. I'm also rarely that happy to see Reed but he strode in, fumbled over an apology or an excuse, I couldn't tell which, and then dragged his special pal back out the door. Douglas threw me suitably pathetic evils before both were out of sight. It didn't take Finn five seconds to appear for one of the aisles, and although it was partly at my expense, I couldn't help but feel a bitty joy seeing his devilish grin returned. Eventually, he confessed he was surprised it hadn't happened before with Reed's QE relationships, but that it was hardly my problem. There'll probably be a new one next week anyway. I didn't feel like it was my place anymore to agree or to judge. The entire encounter left a bitter taste in my mouth and an apprehension settling in my bones. I hoped it was an anomaly rather than a portent of things to come. I didn't have long to ponder or fret as when the bell above the door went again, a large stained grey sheet managed to get through the door, hiding whoever was behind it. I didn't recognise the hands that gripped the corners for dear life to stop it for fallen, but when a voice called desperately for help, I recognised Flora's gentle lilt anywhere. Finn and I managed to manoeuvre both Flora and her mysterious luggage through the door, where she removed the grey sheet to reveal a tarnished gold frame, intricately decorated with grapevines and leaves. Inside was an oil painting of a red brick cottage cradled by some ivy growing up the sides and hens pecking at the land to the front. I've never been one for art, although I can appreciate a beautiful painting when I see one. 
but as we all know by now, its beauty probably wasn't the thing that was going to hurt. I asked Flora what it did, or what it was, but it was difficult to ignore the distance Finn and I had put between us and the large painting. Flora laughed at us and said that it wasn't dangerous. She was only giving it to the shop because it was too big for her house. It was a bit like an electric photo frame. The ones that show you an endless loop of your last family holiday or event. The only difference was that the frame cycled through paintings and steady photos. Finn and I nod and continue to stare, but it doesn't change. The wee red brick cottage doesn't disappear. Maybe it's shy. Flora thanks us and leaves, and whilst Finn goes and fetches the madam, I continue losing my game a Monopoly to a cat. In the midst of being a sore loser, I glance over at the frame to find that, as Flora said, it had changed. The cottage and hens and ivy have disappeared, replaced by a baby's cradle. Made a dark, polished wood, the marks and fading show that it's been well-loved by a family or two in its time. A wee girl, no bigger than two or three, has her hands on the edge and is desperately trying to peer over and inside to where, presumably, a baby lies squirming in its swaddling clothes. This isn't a modern setting. There's no light bulbs or electric sockets. No a piece of plastic in sight. I abandon the game and drift over to the frame, prepared for the next picture, the next snapshot. The cot has disappeared, replaced by a small bed. A wee bairn is poised to hobble its way over the wooden floorboards to the wee girl for the first picture, who stands with arms outstretched a few steps away a bright smile lifting her features. A few years have passed by the next painting. A grave-looking family sit around a table, empty plates getting cold despite the fire blazing away in its place. Every lock a hair around that table is brown, the adults and the bairns, except for one. The wee lassie, the one in the cot, the one who took her first steps, has a shocking heed full of ginger hair. Some of the family look disgusted, others look angry, and it's obvious that the ginger-haired bairn is not as related to the others as she should be. Whoever painted the picture did an excellent job in making the older-looking man, presumably the patriarch, appear sheepish. But if you look closely, just under the table, you can see the wee girl holding her half-sister's hand tightly. And that's how they stay. The two girls, two sisters, grow up close, playing together, reading together, having lessons together, running errands for their family, visiting pals with their ma. They attend their first dinner, first ball, first assembly. Time goes on and the two girls grow into adults. The letters to each other pile up 
and soon one box isn't enough to contain them all. I notice Madame Norna come and stand by me as the picture begins to change. She says nothing and watches the unfolding story with me. The next one is a church. The altar is draped in bright colours, the priest or minister dressed up to match with colourful robes and golden embroidery. Two couples stand before him, wishing to be married. The two sisters glance at each other through the solemn ceremony and stifle a chuckle. Both sisters leave the church and their maiden names behind and start on their lives as wives and mothers. They live close, in the town they grew up. Close to their family and friends. When one's about to give birth to yet another bairn, the other is just round the corner. Their bairns grow up together, walk together, learn to talk together. The sisters share everything in life, every milestone and birthday and heartbreak and loss. Until a loss comes that puts an end to things forever. The younger sister, the ginger-haired one, grows paler and smaller. Her energy is taken for her and there are days she can barely get up for bed. The older sister is more frequently ruined at their house, taking care of the bairns and doing what she can to help the household and nurse her sister back to health. But she knows. Knows that time is running out. The younger girl dies in her sister's arms her bairns and husband surrounding the bed where she breathed her last. The last painting shows the older sister sat in front of a canvas, paint strewn rounder, brush poised over the surface, already saturated with colour in the shape of a red brick cottage. Just before the images reset, she makes eye contact with me and smiles a wistful, melancholy gesture that shows her pride and anguish like their two sides of the same canvas. There's a few moments of silence as I digest what I've seen, and Madame Norna lets it linger before she explains what it is, although I'm pretty sure myself. The seti paintings were done by the older sister so no one would ever forget the younger one. It was a tribute to the greatest relationship she ever had, and one she vowed never to forget. She asks me what I want to do with it. I tell her it'd be a waste putting it in storage where no one can see and admire it. Even though it takes up most of the narrow aisles, it was more important for someone to find it. Together we moved it further into the shop propping it on one of the many wardrobes where it was difficult to miss. It was only at that point that I realised Finn hadn't come back doon for fetching the madam. She noticed my looking about and explained that he'd gone into storage. I asked her if she thought I'd done the right thing when I'd made the deal with death for Finn's life. I didn't really know where it came from, but it had been somewhere in my mind, and we read preoccupied who else was I supposed to discuss it with. 
I'd been trying no to let it get to me, no to let his misery infect me, no to look at him and hate myself for being so selfish. The madam paused, and I could feel her eyes on me. I like to imagine, for the first time in centuries, she didn't know what to say. But given her reply, I doubt it. She confessed that there was no right or wrong in a situation like that. A lot of circumstances in life can rarely be boiled down to black and white, right and wrong. There's only outcomes and consequences. Finn was alive, and that's what I'd wanted. Was this what I wanted? A ghost in the shop haunting me? I whispered it, uttered that I wasn't sure I should have interfered. I felt awful and relieved that I'd said it, that I'd acknowledged these dark thoughts of mine. Finn wasn't Finn anymore. Even though I'd interfered and saved his life, it was like a part of him died that day anyway. I hadn't saved Finn, but a shell of him, a shadow. All I did was make him miserable. I stole his soul and expected him to live fine without it. What if he'd have been better off deed? The madam had nothing to say, and I didn't really want her to say anything. These weren't her burdens. She wasn't the one who had put their foot into something they should have left alone. And she was right. There was no answer that'd make me feel better, that'd turn Finn back to the way he used to be, or make me accept him for who he was now. There was no right, because there wasn't really a wrong. Madame Norna took my hand, and together we watched the scene of the two sisters play out again, for the cradle to the grave. And I wondered, in the same circumstances, if all of us wouldn't make a deal with death to save the ones we love. But thinks better of it as the wee shite's tail f- <laughs> this was near the answer, Douglas. Douglas, I continue losing my game. The letters to each other. The older sister is more frequently row. Her bairns and husbands surrounding. Surrounding. Her bairns and husbands. Why can't I read this sentence? God, that was a dark episode. (laughs) I didn't quite appreciate how emotionally fraught this episode was until I edited it and I was like, whoops, must have been having a bad day. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for listening to episode 44 of The Antique Shop. Episode 45 will be released in two weeks' time. If you'd like to support the show, please think about leaving a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you'd like to go above and beyond for the podcast, then think about visiting our coffee account by searching for Ghostly Thistle on coffee.com and donating however much you can. If you'd like to get in touch about this podcast or my other podcast, then you can message me on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Ghostly Thistle or email me at ghostly.thistle at gmail.com. If you are interested in some of the behind the scenes and inspirations for the episodes in this podcast, then do join the subreddit by searching for the Antique Shop Pod on Reddit and join in the discussion. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.